My earliest memories of church go back to when I was four years old. I loved going to worship at Norwalk Christian Church in Norwalk, California. Everyone there knew my name. Everyone was friendly. Now, my father was the preacher and my mom was the music director, so maybe that's why everyone was friendly and knew my name, but also there were cookies. I loved going to Norwalk Christian Church, but more than the cookies and more than all the rest, I loved the worship service, especially the very beginning because we would sing two or three songs led by my mom, the music director, that were fun and easy enough for children to sing. When those songs were done, the children would be led out to what we called back then children's church, kind of like Sunday school. Can you imagine, can you guess what my favorite song was? Jesus loves me, somebody said. That's an extra cookie for you, Wayne, extra cookie. (laughs) Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. I've asked Andy to help us sing this song, and I'm going to turn my mic off. Let's take this page. Jesus, ready, and. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible. I do believe Molly Hagel, Molly Hagel is the chair of the Pastor Parish Relations Committee. Molly, I would like my notes to reflect that I sang a duet with Andy Blosser on this day. (laughs) If you'll put that in there for me, please. Yes, Jesus loves me. It's a beautiful promise. Another one of our favorite songs, my favorite songs to sing was an old gospel hymn titled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That's a theology that a four-year-old can embrace. Jesus is my friend, and he loves me. You know, there are times in my life, as an adult, as a pastor, that I think about jettisoning that that simple faith, about leaving that aside and, and embracing a more sophisticated faith, one that reflects my degrees and my books and my experience. No, no, because let me tell you, Let me tell you, in my life, when I felt my faith fading and doubt was overwhelming me, it was that simple faith of Jesus' love that saw me through that dark night. On those days when I thought my calling to ministry was over and I was ready to leave, it was that simple faith of Jesus' love that pulled me through. In moments of fear and anxiety and worry, when I wasn't sure I could get out of bed the next day, 
It was Jesus' simple love that pulled me forward. Jesus is my friend, and he loves me. Diana Butler Bass is a marvelous theologian. She's very accessible. She wrote a book titled Freeing Jesus. In that book, she helpfully points out that this idea of being a friend of God goes all the way back to the earliest roots of Judaism. Abraham, you can read about this in the book of Genesis. Abraham is called the friend of God. Go forward, fast forward a couple hundred years to the life of Moses. Moses is referred to as a friend of God. In fact, after Moses escapes Egypt and lives in exile out in the wilderness, he marries into the family known as the Ruel, the Ruel family. What do you suppose Ruel means in English? Friend of God. It's this friend of God who sets the Hebrew people free from the horror and the terror of slavery and leads them out into the wilderness with the vista of freedom as close as they could have ever imagined before. In my life, my best friends, when they are at their best, emulate Jesus. They love me unconditionally. They call me out on occasion. Sometimes they challenge me to be more like the one God has called me to be. Guess because they're my best friends, and you already know this, my best friend of all of them is my wife, Julie, who, let me be clear, by the way, needs no encouragement to call me out or challenge me, just so we're clear about that. But that's what friends do. Is there anything finer in this life than the gift of a friend? Not in my experience. Well, that's what we're going to do in this sermon series. We're going to look at the life and the teachings of Jesus through the experience of his friend Peter. Peter was named Simon in the, in the reading today. He will eventually be nicknamed Peter. I'll get back to what, what, why that happens and what Peter means. But Peter is, is the friend of Jesus, and it's a marvelous uh, way to look at this, pic- at this story. Because Peter is like us. He has many of the negative and positive attributes that we do. He stumbles and falls, stumbles and falls. He's constantly saying, okay, Lord, I'm with you all the way. I'm your A-plus student. And then the next day, he fails miserably. But there's something redemptive about watching him stumbling, bumbling, and falling, and doing all he can to continue to follow Jesus, to continue to move toward the holiness of God. It's a beautiful story. It's our story. It's the world's story really. And by the same token, we're going to be inspired by the gospel hymn we heard the choir sing so beautifully a moment ago, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In fact, today's sermon title, Jesus Sought Me, comes from a line in that, in that uh, tune. Jesus sought me while a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. I've said this to you before, quoting that very hymn, but that is the essence of the gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how far we wander, no matter how far we run away, even if we turn our backs completely on faith, even if we live in a way that we know Jesus would not approve of, Jesus does not judge us. Jesus Jesus comes after us. God comes after us to find us, not to judge us, not to punish us, but to grab us and hold us in the arms of love. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And the series begins with the story you heard a moment ago. Jesus is at uh, 
it's called the Sea of Galilee. Lake Gennesaret is what Luke calls it initially, but it's the same place, the Sea of Galilee. He's at the Sea of Galilee. The sea is behind him. The crowd is pressing in. He's trying to give them a teaching, but they, they've heard about this amazing healer, this brilliant teacher, this marvelous preacher, and they're pushing right up against him, pushing him out to the fact where he's almost falling into the, to the Sea of Galilee itself. So he turns around and he sees that Peter and the other fishermen have, are off washing their nets somewhere, and there's a boat available. So he has Peter bring the boat over to him. He gets into the boat and sits down so that he can teach easily and safely. Now I want to pause here for an aside except that it's not really an aside. This matters. The commentators are full of comments that say that in rabbinical Judaism, the teacher always sat down. It was a seat of authority. And that was a way to demonstrate his authority to the, to the folks who had gathered, the disciples or whoever it is that gathered. That is simply not accurate. You can look at the life of Jesus himself, who was called a rabbi. Sometimes he taught while walking along the way. Sometimes he taught outside of the temple where he witnessed a tax collector and a, and a Pharisee. Sometimes he taught in many ways. You can argue that he even teaches from the cross, for goodness sakes. And here's why I'm telling you this. As soon as we say something like, all Jewish teachers do this, we're wandering into dangerous territory. Because pretty soon we're going to say, all Jewish people are like this, or all LGBTQ folks are like this, or all African Americans are like this. And when we overgeneralize, my friends, we're standing on a very slippery slope. We've seen anti-Semitism increase exponentially in the last eight years. We've seen hate crimes against the LGBTQ community increase in the last few years. We've seen racism raise its ugly head in a way that we hadn't seen for 50 or 60 years in this country. We have to be careful about making these broad, over, overly general statements that say all Jews or all these folks are like this. Because the next thing you know, we're sliding down that slope. So Jesus sits in the boat. And by the way, why does he sit down in the boat? Have you ever tried to stand in a boat and talk to people? It's impossible. He's sitting down because it's safer and, and more easy. He gives the teaching, and then the teaching is done. And he turns to Peter, and he says, let's take your boat now out to the deep portion of the lake. I'll show you where the fish are. Peter's response is instructive. Peter says, we've already been out all night, master. There's no fish to be caught. I'm tired, I'm cranky, I need a bath and some breakfast. Peter is basically refusing a gracious gift from Jesus to help him in his business. But honestly, we can kind of understand, can't we? I mean, Peter's the fisherman. Jesus has a seminary degree. He's a preacher. I can imagine Peter is saying to him, you've got a degree, you're a preacher, you've never done a hard day's work in your life. Uh, by the way, I've heard those words, those exact words for me. It, it'd be sort of like me going up to my, my brother-in-law, Steve. He's retired now, but he used to, to oversee a, a, what he called a mint ranch. Mint was their primary crop, and they also raised cows and horses. It'd be like Glenn, city slicker from San Francisco, going up to Uncle Steve and saying, Steve, um, you know, I went to school, I read some books and things, I have some ideas for you on how to manage your farm here. Now, Steve is a super nice guy. He's very quiet, thoughtful. Uh, my sons, his nephews, call him the Zen master. They just think Steve is amazing. 
Steve would not say anything to me, but I know in his mind he'd be thinking, who are you talking to, Glenn? You can't tell the horses from the cows. So we can cut Peter some slack. Come on, Jesus. You don't, you, you're not a fisherman. You don't know where the fish are. Just leave me alone. Except the day before, in Luke chapter 4, the day before, Peter's mother-in-law is healed of a fever. I brought this up in a sermon a few weeks ago. A fever in antiquity was a very dangerous thing. It could be deadly. In, in antiquity, you couldn't jump on your donkey and ride down to the CVS and buy some Tylenol and come back and take care of the fever. Luke even notes that it was a high fever, which means she was in serious danger. Jesus heals her and basically saves her life. You would think in light of that that Peter would be willing to take advice from this man who's obviously a brilliant teacher, an amazing preacher, and an incredible healer. And by the way, we're taking this story seriously, if not literally. So as we seriously look at this, why is Peter so reluctant to take this advice? What's getting in the way? At the nine o'clock service, somebody called out, ego. I think they saw my notes ahead of time. I cannot tell you how many times people I respect, friends I admire, folks who I know are full of wisdom have come to me with a new idea to consider a challenge or to look at something from a different angle. And I've said, no, 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 no. I have lots of experience. I went to school. I know how to handle this. I'll be fine. I don't need any advice at all. Thank, thank you very much. What's getting in the way? You already know what's in my notes. The ego is there. And what's ironic about that? And by the way, I don't like this part of my sermon. What's, what's ironic about that is I've preached sermons in this pulpit, in this setting, in Grace Hall, at First Community South, against the idea of the American myth that we all need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I've preached against that because it'd be mentally emotionally, even physically damaging to let that myth get stuck that somehow I have to be responsible for everything I do. Think about it for a moment. Go back to your childhood. How many people helped you in your childhood? Mentored you, taught you, coached you? High school years, young adult, to wherever you are now. If you were making a list in your mind, it would be a long one. It would be a long list. No one pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps. And yet here I was trying to say, oh, 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 no, I'll do it myself. This can be dangerous, too. This refusal to accept a gift graciously given can have tragic consequences. I'm wondering, have you ever heard me, I'm asked the choir this, too, have you ever heard me talk about Les Mis before? They're all laughing and smiling, yes. Once or twice I brought it up. It's my favorite musical. It's marvelous. But here's something I've never lifted up in a sermon before. Near the end of the story, when Jean Valjean, who is the primary character that we follow, is confronted with his nemesis, his enemy, Javert. Javert is tied up. His hands and wrists are bound with rope. And the revolutionaries hand over Javert, the inspector of the police, to Jean Valjean to assassinate him. You remember the story, right? Jean Valjean had been, had been imprisoned for 19 years for simply stealing a small bit of bread to feed his family. 
He was sentenced to 19 years of hard labor for trying to feed his family. He was put into slave labor. After nearly 20 years, he's finally set free. But then, in order to have some money to buy some more food, he steals from a kindly priest. But the priest forgives him. But Javert, the inspector, the one who's in charge of the French police, he won't forgive him. And he spends the next years, decades even, tracking down Jean Valjean wherever he can. But finally now, here at the end of the movie, Jean Valjean is handed Javert, bound, hand and wrist, unable to, to move or flee. And Jean Valjean cuts the ropes and sets him free. It is the first time in Javert's life he encounters the freely given gift of grace. He does not know what to do. His whole life, it's been right, wrong, right, wrong, black, white, black, white. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. That should not exist. That weakens the human race. It doesn't, it's not there. It's never to be given or received. And now he's received it. His life has been given back to him. And he's overwhelmed with fright. He's stuck at that verse in Amazing Grace. "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. He's overwhelmed by the fear and if you know the story, he takes his life. If only, if only he could have sat long enough in his fear to experience the second half of that stanza. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Sometimes, though, we're so afraid of grace. We're so afraid of the mess that comes with grace. It's hard to forgive someone. It's hard to accept forgiveness. It's hard to name the, the fact that we need to, re, to be redeemed. It's hard to, to do all the work to reframe, to re-understand, to reintroduce each other, to find your way through that messiness of forgiveness and grace and redemption. It's just not easy. Some of us would just rather run away from the forgiveness, just turn away from it rather than accept it. My friend Mike Iaconelli, he's in the resurrection now, but he wrote, he wrote a beautiful book that helps us deal with this. It's called Messy Spirituality. He deals with the messiness of grace. Now, sometimes we just want to turn away from it, but listen to his words. Every day, I want to be in dangerous proximity to Jesus. I long for a life that explodes with meaning and is filled with adventure, wonder, risk, and danger. I listen to this part. I long for a faith that is gloriously treacherous. I want to be with Jesus, not knowing whether to cry or laugh, to long for a faith that is gloriously treacherous. That's the faith that God invites us to. That's the life that Jesus invites us to, to give our heart, soul, and mind to the way of love so that we can experience the goodness of life that God wants us to have. Back to the story. Peter finally relents. I know it was just in one verse in the story as Jennifer read it, but in my mind it was... Two, two separate comments made far apart. Jesus, or Peter finally relents to Jesus, fine, we'll go out to the deep part of the lake and we'll look for the fish. In the Greek, in the original Greek, what Peter is really saying here is, sure, Jesus, whatever, let's go. And they go out in the lake, they throw out the nets, 
the hall is overwhelming. The next boat comes up. They, too, throw out their nets. They pull in the hall. It's so overwhelming that both boats are swamped. They're in danger of sinking. And Peter's reaction to this is to fall on his knees at the face of Jesus and say, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. What's going on here? Why does he react like that? This is an amazing thing. He saw a miracle the day before of his mother-in-law being saved, her life being saved. This is just catching a few fish. He should be writing the thank you note saying, this is the best day we've ever had. We're making a ton of money today. Instead, he falls on his face and says, I'm a sinful man, go away. I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but it's Luke's way of telling us Peter's got some serious issues to wrestle with. And we're going to see those as we emerge in, through these stories. What does Jesus say to him? Does Jesus respond by saying, well, yeah, Peter, your life's a mess and you're a sinner, but next week I begin a five-part sermon series on how to face sin in your life. No. What does he say? Do not be afraid. Peter's afraid of the goodness of grace. He's afraid that he might be loved unconditionally. He's overwhelmed with fear in the moment. But Jesus is saying, Peter, which translated into English means rocky. You're my rock. You're the foundation of this group of disciples that I'm calling. You are strong enough to deal with this. You are my friend. I will stand with you forever. Oh, I may need to challenge you. I may need to call you out. But there is nothing you can do that will turn my love away from you because Peter, rocky, you're my friend, and I love you. Peter stumbling, bumbling, falling, continues to follow in the way of Jesus. Jesus loves us. God loves us. God loves the world. And in that simple love, this world can be made new if we simply remember that old, simple song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, yes, Jesus loves me and you.